Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Welcome back to Michigan Unsolved. My name is Christy Kramer and I'm your host. And this is part two of episode five, The Disappearance of the Skelton Brothers. Before we get into the details of what happened Thanksgiving weekend 2010, I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. I am the kind of person that tries to see all sides of a case of just about anything. I don't like to form an opinion on something unless I have as many available details as possible. I've probably been told a million times that I really should have been a lawyer or a judge because I do have this uncanny ability to not pick sides based on, you know, if I like this person or not. So The reason I tell you this is because my thoughts on what transpired after the boys disappeared is not a popular opinion. Um, So I'm just letting you know that I really dug, dug deep on this one. I had planned on posting the second part of this case throughout the week, but I got into such a deep dive into the possibilities. And I'm going to discuss some of those. Honestly, there's so much that I've uncovered in the last two weeks researching this case that I could not cover it all on this podcast. Um, but it, it is very disheartening. A lot of the things that I found out that are not directly related to the boy's disappearance, but in a way they kind of are. Um, so with that being said, um, like I said, I, my opinion is not going to be a popular one, but, um, you know, I would really like to see some evidence, you know, the the police believe that the boys are not alive. Um, but there's, they have not, um, and I understand that it's an ongoing case, but there's like literally no evidence to claim that. So, um, with that being said, let's go forward um, to where we left off uh, last week. This is the uh, disappearance of nine-year-old Andrew, seven-year-old Alexander, and five-year-old Tanner. If you remember last week, I gave you their birth dates. At the time of their disappearances, all three of the boys had just newly turned those ages. Andrew's birthday was five days before Alexander's was two weeks before and Tanner's was five weeks before. So yes, they were nine, seven and five, but they technically, I mean, they had literally just turned those ages. So keep that in mind because essentially, especially with Tanner, you're looking at a, at a four-year-old here. Okay. These, this was not, these kids were very young. 
Um, also, the vehicle that is in question for that day was John's vehicle, a blue Dodge Car Caravan, Michigan Plate 9JQH93. The boys were last seen by a neighbor playing in their yard on Thursday, December 25th, 2010, which was Thanksgiving. Okay, so that's, the like I said, the boys went missing. Um, if you remember when we left off on last week, John had told Tanya that his friend, Joanne Taylor, had the boys. Um, he told her that she that he was in the hospital because he had injured himself. It goes back and forth about whether he had injured his ankle or his leg. Um, Tanya called the hospital. The hospital did confirm that he had injured himself. And they informed her that it was during a failed suicide attempt. The hospital that he was in was in Ohio. I have been able to reach out to Chief Larry Weeks and he did confirm with me that John had called a friend and took him to the hospital. And that is why uh, Tanya did see John's vehicle in the driveway because a friend had taken him to the hospital. Tanya had called the police at exactly 3.01 because 3 p.m. was the time that the boys were supposed to be returned and her lawyer had instructed her to wait until the time had passed before calling the police. Um, the police made entry into John's house. The boys were not there, but the house was in disarray. The furniture had been broken. There was a broken curio cabinet, uh, broken glass in the kitchen, and the mattress had been sliced. Tanya does state in multiple interviews that she says that it appeared to be in a fit of rage that the damage was done. When we ended last week, um, it was, I had told you that the police pulled John's cell phone pings and his Google searches. So that's what we're going to discuss right now. Um, after pulling these cell phone pings, the FBI went straight to the hospital in Lucas County, Ohio, to interview John and ask him about the information that came up from his cell phone. So we're going to discuss that as well. Um, the cell phone pinged off of a tower at 429 a.m., 3.3 miles away from John's home. At 5 a.m., it pinged off a tower near Holiday City, Ohio, which is 25 miles away from John's home, and it's right along the Ohio Turnpike. And as an over-the-road truck driver, John would know this information. Um, and John also states that um, he knew that area very well. At 6.46 a.m., the cell phone pinged at a tower showing him back at his home. Again, approximately 25 miles from the Holiday City. Now, um, as we go forward with the information, there is a lot of interviews that have happened between 2010 and 2023. With each interview, more information comes out. So I'm kind of trying to keep the timeline going here. So... As we discuss Holiday City, Ohio, we are going to fast forward a little bit and then we'll go back to 2010. So 
as I said, the cell phone ping showed him in Holiday City, Ohio at 5 a.m. on Friday morning. Now, when I personally was researching this case, the first thing I did was pull up a Google map of Holiday City because I wanted to see what this town looked like and, you know, how it was laid out. Is it a lot of farmland? It is extremely desolate. I don't even know if there's a street light in this town. Very, very small. Um, and that's now, I don't even know what it was like 10, 10 years, 12 years ago now. So there, but the one thing that I noticed is that there is a very large pond right off of the turnpike, extremely large pond. It is said to be the size of multiple football fields. Okay. Now there is literally no record of this pond being searched in 2010. Why? I do not know. This is where you saw him, his cell phone pinged in this town and you have this large body of water. Why was it not searched? So fast forward to 2019 when a tip comes in that a person saw what they believe to have been John's van parked on the side of the road on Thanksgiving Day. In 2010. That doesn't match the timeline of events considering that the cell phone pings showed him there on Friday morning, but the police felt this was enough evidence to go search the pond. So in 2019, eight years later, in the spring of 2019, they went out there and they brought cadaver dogs, a dive team, sonar equipment, and they searched the pond and the surrounding wooded area. And nothing was found of the boys. Again, why it was not searched in 2010. Like when I pulled that map up, I first thought to mine was, did anybody search this pond? I mean, it's just, it's huge. And if this is where he was supposed to have gone, that just makes sense to me. So anyway, so the FBI, after seeing those cell phone pings, go directly to the Lucas County Hospital where John was at. And they ask him about the cell phone, these pings in Holiday City. And John says he did not go to Holiday City. Now, again, let's fast forward back to 2019. John um, gave an interview with WDIV's Sandra Ali. He gave this, it was a phone interview from jail. And John states that he left his phone in the cup holder of his van that there was somebody staying with him that night and that person took the van without his permission he did not know and then they brought it back he said he did not know about this until 7 30 a.m when he got into his van to go to his aunt's house this is what john is saying in 2019 take that with a grain of salt, I, there's, that was never mentioned back in 2010. That's what he said in this interview in 2019. Like I said, we're going to be going back and forth, just kind of filling in this timeline a little bit. So now let's go back to 2010. That was John's explanation for the cell phone pings. Okay. So John says he, those were not his. 
that yes, it was his phone, but he was not the person driving the van. So now let's go to the Google searches. Um, there were two searches on the computer that the police found quite concerning. Um, one of those was, does rat poison kill? May not have been exactly those words. The police have not released the exact verbiage, but they do state that it had something to do with rat poison and killing. The other one was um, breaking a neck with the bare hands. Again, not the exact verbiage, but they have not actually released the exact wording, just that it had something to do with, with breaking a neck with your bare hands. Now, when they asked John about this, John states that on Wednesday night when he made the boys the fried chicken and the cake, they watched a quote-unquote kung fu movie. He does not remember the name of the movie, but he said that during the course of the movie, somebody was killed by the neck breaking and the boys asked if this is possible. So he used it as a teaching moment of sorts and Googled it to prove to the boys that yes, it could be done. Um, I will be quite honest. That does not shock me. Um, when my son was little, I could definitely see Googling something like that because he asked me to, because he saw something on TV. I, I don't think that that search is necessarily like a red herring because as a parent of a boy, I do get it. Uh, the rat poison search, John says he did not search for that. Whether or not the boys did, I don't know. But as a grown adult, and remember at the time, John was 39 years old. As a grown adult, how do you not know that rat poison can kill? What would be the need to search that? That to me doesn't make any sense. That would be like searching is the sky blue. You know rat poison can kill. So to me, that one just doesn't make sense either. John claims he did not search for that. He does not know how that search got there. If he had an explanation for one, why doesn't he have the explanation for the other? Just saying. Um, now, there was a concerning post that John put onto Facebook on Thursday night that stated, May God and Tanya forgive me extremely concerning. Um, some speculate that it could be because he was planning to kill himself. It could be um, because he had already killed the boys. Uh, it could be that he was planning on giving the boys to these people. I There's just so many what ifs. It is a very ominous Facebook post, but Again, you know, I have to, I have to stay neutral on this. There is no evidence that the boys were hurt. Um, and I have to say, I mean, I was on Facebook last night and just somebody posted, um, I don't want to be married anymore. I'm going to get a divorce. I it just, people post stupid stuff without thinking. That's just the ways of social media. So without John explaining what this Facebook post was about, I don't think that we can really read too much into it.
Um, at the time, um, I'm sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. So over the course of the next few days after the boys disappeared, over 500 people searched for the boys. They covered miles on foot and covering as much ground as possible. They searched woods, creeks, fields, any place that you could get to on foot. But unfortunately, after about a week, organized searches were called off. Um, as you remember, John stated that he gave the boys to somebody named Joanne Taylor, who he states that while he was working as a truck driver, um, Joanne and her husband had broke down on the side of the road and he helped them and he continued an online relationship, not an inappropriate relationship, but just like an online friendship with Joanne. And the police say that they cannot find any Joanne Taylor that knew a John Skelton, John Skelton. Again, let's be honest. If this Joanne Taylor exists, I'm sure her name is not Joanne Taylor. If she exists in the capacity that John says she exists, I'm sure she was new using a pseudonym. So that's just, Again, something that's come into my mind. Like I said, I've done so much research into this. Um, so over the course of the next, I'm not even sure how long it took for more information to come out, but John's story does end up changing a little bit. There are um, multiple people. John then, okay, so John originally said he gave the boys to this Joanne Taylor. Well, then he begins to say again that Tanya had been inappropriate with the boys and he Joanne Taylor had was part of a group called the underground sanctuary that has ties to the Amish Mennonite community and they were going to take the boys and kind of like rehome them within the community to keep them safe. Okay. And then there were four people that John had been dealing with, according to him. And that was Joanne and a man named Elijah, another man named Virgil and a woman named Sue. According to John in later interviews, he said that 10 PM on Thanksgiving night, they came to take the boys. Uh, he said that originally it had, was supposed to be kind of like a trial where they were going to keep them for the one night, but they ended not they ended up keeping them, um, not, you know, not bringing them back. So this is where things get kind of crazy. Okay, in 2011, forensic psychologist Stephen Miller interviewed John in great length. He interviewed John and John's parents, and he says he actually believes John that he believes that John is withholding information, maybe not telling the whole truth, but he does believe that John gave the boys to a group. He does not believe that the boys are dead. This is again, this was in 2011. 
But he said in, in reading John's body language, listening to the way he was speaking, he does not believe that, um, that the boys are dead. And he does believe that there is some truth to what John is saying. So now if we go back to it, it, if you take into consideration that this group that John supposedly gave the boys to is part of the Amish community, this next part makes a little bit more sense. On Sunday, November 28th, a worker at the House of Donuts in Sandusky, Ohio, claims that a woman and three boys came into the store. She said the boys were very shy. They did not make eye contact with her. The woman um, and the boys, all four of them, kind of looked a little disheveled. Um, she said that the one, the smallest boy just was kind of looking around and the woman referred to him as Tanner. Um, the, the worker says that at that point, if this was Sunday afternoon, um, she did not know about the skeleton boys missing. Now at that point, they'd only been missing two days and, you know, social media, in the internet. I mean, yeah, it was a thing in 2010, but I don't think it was as prevalent as it is now. So she said the next on Monday, when she saw that the boys were missing in the paper, she talked to the owner of the donut shop, who was a former police officer. And that is when they called the Sandusky police and filed a report. Now Sandusky would be on the route towards Pennsylvania. And the reason I bring that up is because when you look into the Amish population, okay, and this is something that I don't really think a lot of people are aware of just how big the Amish population is, but Michigan has 15,000 Amish people in their population, Pennsylvania has 75,000, Ohio has 74,000, and Indiana has 53,000 people. Now, like I said, Sandusky is definitely on the way to Pennsylvania. And at one point, John did say that he believes that the group that he gave the boys to did have connections in Pennsylvania. Now, um... There really isn't a whole lot of detail after this point. The only sighting that's ever been reported was the sighting in Sandusky two days after the boys went missing. There has not been, um, the police really haven't given any kind of an update. There ha they haven't said, you know, we're doing this or we're doing that. Um, I did talk to, to Chief Weeks. He did confirm with me that cadaver dogs were used in the initial search. So that tells me if cadaver dogs did not pick up a scent of the boys in the house or in the van, what are we looking at here? There is literally no proof that the boys are dead. Okay. There is no proof of anything. And 
And honestly, it breaks my heart because I've watched so many interviews of of Tanya and you know, she at this point has basically resigned herself to believing that she's not going to see her boys alive again. And that just it breaks my heart because there there just literally is no proof. So that kind of brings me to um a part of this that like I said, I've been kind of deep diving and it's not necessarily about the boys per se, but about the Amish community. So there is a podcast that I mentioned last week. It's called Shattered. Um, Jeremy Allen from WDIV, as well as Sandra Ali did this podcast and it's amazing, like totally amazing. However, they went into some Amish communities and they interviewed a few people. The first, the first girl they interviewed, they go into a small Amish bakery. Okay. And they, they walk up to this girl behind the counter and she's young and she consents to being filmed and they start interviewing her and they ask her, um, they said she was, she definitely felt uncomfortable but they ask her, would it be possible for somebody to bring three boys into the community to be taken care of? And this girl says, no, you know, somebody would call the police. Knowing that the boy, that the skeleton boys were missing. Well, moments into the interview, this girl's father comes out and shuts the whole thing down. Okay, just completely shuts the whole thing down. So, um, he's like, you know, we don't do interviews. We don't do, you know, the, the, the camera was not okay with him. They don't do interviews and so on. So then they go to another Amish farm and the next Amish farm welcomes them in. No problem. They, well, they bring them into their home. No problem with interviews. No problem with the recording device. So it, that became, they asked this family too, if this would be possible for three boys to be brought into the community and be taken in. And again, they say, no, it's not possible. They, somebody would report it to the police. But the difference between these two interviews in itself is proof to me how different and how widely diverse the Amish community is. Okay. Um, you have some communities that are so strict, they do not use buttons or zippers. There's the old order who there's like literally no communication whatsoever. Now, remember that the major that a lot of, um, Amish speak Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay. Some of them, they only get their information via a newspaper for the Amish. Yes. Some of them do read the newspapers for the, you know, that the major newspapers, but others only read a specific Amish newspaper. And if the information is not in that paper, they don't know it. Okay. Um, 
Did you know that the majority of Amish families have eight to 10 children? And one of, there's two reasons that they have a lot of kids. And one of the reasons is because they believe that, you know, God is blessing them with the children. They're just going to continue, you know, as long as God's giving them children, they're going to continue to have them. The other reason is, is that because they use the children to work the farm and the land. Okay, whether or not it, they're farmers or builders or whatever, but they use the children within their family businesses. So children are extremely important in the Amish community because, pardon the way this sounds, but it's built-in labors. Okay, that's just something to think about here. And um, I, I'm telling you, this is really making me angry because the more research I've done, it's so infuriating. Um, I've actually spoken to multiple people who have left the Amish community and I have flat out asked them, is there a possibility that these children could be brought into the community and taken in? And every single person that I spoke to said, most definitely yes. Number one, like I said, Tanner was barely five years old. Okay, they would, first of all, three boys would not be brought into the community. There is no doubt in my mind that if these boys were taken in by the community of the Amish people, they were split up. Okay, maybe not three ways, maybe two, I'm not sure, but they were split up. Okay, Tanner would have very little memory after a short period of time. Okay, that that does not surprise me at all. He would, I could totally understand him not remembering his past. Andrew was older. I'm sure he probably would have some memories. Even Alexander being newly seven would probably remember some. But once you're kind of indoctrinated into this community, you know, you don't think about that old stuff. Okay. And I will tell you this, in the research that I've done, I have also found out that there is a underground railroad of sorts within the community, but the opposite way, okay? There is this underground community that gets people out of the Amish culture, okay? They, people who want to leave go through this underground community to learn how to live with the quote-unquote English is what they call us. Um, they help set them up with places to live, clothing, um, knowledge of what to, to know and what to learn, um, and things like that. So, I mean, if, if they have those kind of things within the, the Amish population, why is it so hard to think that three small children could be brought in to a community that doesn't that has very little connection to the outside world? These boys could have been taken to Pennsylvania and taken into an old order and literally just disappear. In 1984, it is said that there were 
84,000 Amish people. Okay. 30 in here in 2023, you're looking at 30 states plus Canada and over 300,000. That's three and a half times more Amish than there were in 1984. The population explosion is again due to the belief in large families seeing as seen as a blessing from God and that the children also provide labor for their farming enterprises. Now here is another interesting fact that I did not know, but in 1965, the Amish were exempt by Congress from collecting or paying social security, meaning that they do not have a lot of Amish people are born at home Okay, they do not have to cert. They do not have to have birth certificates. They don't have social security cards. Some of them do. Please do not mis mistake this that this is all Amish, but some of them do have social security cards and birth certificates. But it is not required by law as it would be for you or I. Okay, that's just something to think about as well. There's. A lot of issues with this case. Do I believe that John Skelton is a narcissist? 100% without a doubt. In every interview that I've listened to, he, you can, it's, it's a lot of me, 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 me. Okay. I firmly believe that he is holding something back because he can. For no other reason, but because he can. Do I believe that he killed his children? No, I do not. Do I believe that he currently knows where he, they are? No, I do not. There is so much more going on here than that he knows. Number one, he's in prison and they monitor his communication. Whether or not when he gets out in 2025... More information comes out. I, I don't know. And he is eligible for release um, in 2025. He was denied parole in 2021. And in 2022, he actually skipped his parole hearing. In 2017, the bones of three children were found in Missoula, Montana. Um, it took two months for DNA testing to prove that the boys didn't, that the bones did not believe to the Skelton brothers. Um, so, uh, with that, John is, like I said, serving, um, a conviction 10 to 10 to 15 years, um, in prison for the conviction of unlawful imprisonment. And he is available for release in 2025. John does state that um, the boys are supposed to be held within this organization until they are all of age. Um, he does not state what that age is, whether it's 18, 21, 25. I, I don't know. Um, he also said at one point that nothing would happen until he was released. Um, John did say in his 2019 interview that he feels that even when his release date comes in 2025, that the police will find some way to keep him locked up. So I don't know. The police may have more information. Um, I know that this 
episode has just been a whirlwind of information and I do apologize for that but it is like I have been so infuriated by this case and by a lot of the mishandling and the lack of information and I understand when things are ongoing investigations that the police can't say much but it's like if you've got something do something with it. If you're going to charge him with something, charge him now. Don't wait till 2025 when he's ready to walk out the door. Charge him now. You know, if you really believe that these, because these, the police are adamant that the boys are not alive anymore. If you truly believe that, then you must have some evidence to reflect that. If you do, then charge him now. Do not make the community of Marenzi and that poor mother wait any longer. Um, if... If the boys are alive, God bless them. Um, I, and, you know, I'm going to leave it at that. I, it's, it's really a shame to me. I, I'm not going to, um, demean the Amish community with some of the information that I found out, um, because I know that not all of them, um, are bad people. Um, but in my investigation and research into the lifestyle of some of the groups, um, it's, it's a very, it's very sad. Um, but like I said, I'm not going to share, I was going to share that with you guys, but I, I decided not to because it's just, it's not, like I said, it's not all Amish communities that, um, you know, that are bad. So I don't want to talk bad about the whole group. So, um, with that being said, the boys are still missing. Um, John is eligible for, for full release in 2025. And I guess we will see what happens at that point, but, um, stay safe out there and I will see you next week for our next case. Thank you. Bye-bye.